North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Kuntz, I recently saw a story that Harvard University is going to be reprimanding or uh, punitively punishing students that do not use proper pronouns, that is, the pronouns not as historically received, but those as chosen by their their classmates. Recently, in my own little abode of Rockford, uh, similar kinds of prescriptions were being handed down in, in quiet corners at teachers' meetings at, uh, at a local Lutheran school, and we'll just kind of leave that there. That's, that, that battle's not over yet, but mm-hmm. you can see that the, you know, the salt's in the water just about everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the uh, military has made it a primary agenda to uh, make sure that proper pronouns are being used uh, in, in its kind of mm-hmm. intercourses, uh, pun maybe intended there, uh, everywhere. What what gets me, I guess, at the end of this is not just the diabolical nature of all of this, the upside-down reality, the rejection of reality, the complete uh, likelihood that this is this is going to lead to engineering mistakes is kind of how, how I see it. Like, if you can't tell an apple from an orange, eventually your cider is going to taste really weird. Um, and so, you know, what happens <laughs> when you're in a foxhole and you're shouting for backup and you use the wrong pronoun and someone stops to argue with you about it, Right. Uh, what happens in a society where we are incapable of telling light from darkness and good from evil? I think we know ultimately the answer to that. But then uh, since we're going to be talking about education today, uh, what happens to a generation that is not taught to distinguish between obvious things 
and I really do bring it back to engineering. I mean, how long till the bridges fall down? Yeah. How long till the bridges fall down is a little hard to say simply because the infiltration of these things into math and the hard sciences, which are really the basis of how we live our everyday lives in the West, or let's say in the developed world more generally, is relatively recent. So it has for a long time been sort of a joke if you say that you're an English major, first because you were maybe dreamy or poetic and therefore useless. We've made the case for the liberal arts here and in other places, but that the English major was useless, but now the English major is just unbearably political. And by political is meant especially that this person really has nothing of particular value, interest, or wonder to say, but instead is utterly and drearily orthodox in the ways that she has been drilled to be. So the infiltration of that into all kinds of education, especially at all levels, because the things to which, you know, Moms for Liberty has been objecting in elementary schools has been in most colleges at one level or another for decades. So that spreading, that seeping into every kind of education such that it would get to like an MIT or a Caltech on which we have relied to sustain the technological complexity of our own civilization. That is an unknown quantum. It's unknown in its you know, speed. It's not unknown, as you said, in its end. You know, I, I we could debate, are we headed there 100 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour? But we can't really debate that it, an utter disregard for reality or for maybe more deeply nature has, you know, drastic, destructive consequences. You are You are trying to build a house on top of a volcano. So we will see how long that takes. I don't think that the end is actually in doubt. Now the the extent of this end is is not is not unitary. So I, um, let me explain what I mean by that. People will bring up the deficits or the growing politicization, ideological conformity requisite even in a math department, and they'll say, the Chinese aren't doing this. This isn't going to end well. That's that's always premised on some idea that like the Chinese don't have a giant demographic cliff that they're currently falling off. But it's also they're just growing in power or something like inexorably. And it's just going to work and they're going to take over everything and somehow want to run the world the way that Americans did. So that's a fallacy. But it's premised on the idea that somehow the West is a unitary thing mm -hmm. in some kind of ideological way. And the current state of education, especially what we're going to highlight this week with the recent controversies in New York about ultra-Orthodox Jewish education, reveal that the West, because it is pluralistic, not only in a racial sense or an ethnic sense, but especially in ideological sense, is not a unitary thing. It's not like ultra-Orthodox Jews or Latin mass Catholics are advancing into the same future precisely as people that don't go to any religious institution and send their kids to public school. So I think when you think about the future, one of the things that you're looking at is what is the future of new institutions or what currently seem to be sort of sideline, you know, side stream groups rather than just, okay, well, the future belongs to the Chinese because Americans, as if somehow, you know, Harvard University still represents America in any conceivable way. Americans are doomed because they're going to be worrying more about pronouns than about, you know, exact calculations in civil engineering. But when your neighbor's house catches on fire and then turns into a nuclear waste, like, it impacts you a little bit, right? Yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> so, I mean, you, we, we, it's not like we never had these things before. There were structural, there were civil engineering disasters in America at its most 
confident, wealthy, technologically committed and homogeneous. I mean, the the largest mining disaster that ever occurred in Pennsylvania, which is one of the biggest mining states, happened in 1959. So some of these things are simply a result of living under a, you know, the changeable fortunes of a fallen man. On the other hand, the other question is where and when will these things occur? And I think a lot of technological complexity is built on from the perspective of the person who doesn't understand the complexity is built on trust. You even had the exhortation in, you know, let's say uh, darkest COVID times to trust science or follow science. And the reason that you would tell someone to trust or follow something is because it can command trust, right? So I can, I mean, I can tell my child, trust me and he probably will. So, if I'm if I'm trusting in the capacities of this guy that has a degree from Virginia Tech or this pilot that has a degree from Air Force Academy and has been flying, you know, planes for however many years, then that's based all of that trust, trust in technological complexity is ultimately trust in other human beings. If you're dealing with a low trust situation, whether reasonably low trust like okay, well, both my pilots this morning could have been hired simply for their genetic material, their ethnic heritage, the boxes they checked. They may have not been hired because they were actually good at being pilots. That could be reasonably low trust. I could be unreasonably low trust, and I could learn that these people are just as capable as anybody else. The problem is if the plane is going down, I don't really have time to figure out why that might be or why there's a higher incidence of, you know, air disasters in India than in the United States historically. So, you know, these these kinds of things, it, it yes, it does affect me. That depends also on who my name is. And maybe like, you know, people at the beginning of the highway system, I just avoid certain means of transportation because I just don't trust them anymore. So there were people that wouldn't drive on highways because you could go faster than like 40 miles an hour. You know, they just figured, well, you're probably going to die. So I'll stay on the back roads. That was the 1920s. So maybe we're going back to that. I don't know. But I do know that living with technology requires very high levels of trust that the people that put it there and are sustaining it are actually capable. Yeah, it seems like the, the tendency to opt out on some level in some way is kind of the new fad maybe mm -hmm. but then it's going to be applied in a, in a spectrum of of ways which is going to lead to even more fragmentational experiences um well okay so fragmentational i mean the hasidic schools in new york are, are definitely not the mainstream they have and, opted out yeah. and uh, uh why does it matter if they score well on the tests especially since the tests uh self-identify as having multiple choice right answers i mean why not i mean why not? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. For more than 100 years, there has been a legal requirement in the state of New York that you will find in most states in, in some way. Pastor Fisk can talk about homeschooling in Illinois. I don't I don't understand how it, it's, it's a special get, place. It's really. a special place, <laughs> um, you know, and but most states, whether you're a homeschooler or a private schooler, you have some requirement to provide something. Sometimes they're subjects, sometimes they are forms of standardized assessment of students. And in New York, the requirement since 1895 has been that private schools provide an education, quote, substantially equivalent to public schools. Now, in 1895, as, as the listeners know, that meant something a little bit different but than it probably does today. But here's what it means today is that you have to require instruction in English, in arithmetic in civics that's usually a pretty common requirement because the great concern in times like 1895 was that catholics or lutherans or others were not actually training their children to be americans and those are those are fairly basic new york does not actually require state assessments of private schools so i think homeschoolers in new york may have to receive uh, standardized assessment tests. I know homeschoolers in Colorado do, but in New York, 
private schools do not necessarily. In 2019, as a result of certain political pressure induced by a couple of facts with which the listeners may be unaware, many Hasidic schools, which are strictly sex segregated, so there's boys schools and girls schools, there's no there's no such thing as co-ed for ultra-Orthodox Jews, took state assessments. And to many people's surprise, in some of these schools, every single student flunked tests of basic reading and math. And by reading, we mean English reading. We don't mean Yiddish or, or Hebrew or and, and just just to be clear, I mean, these are tests of actual English and math, not tests of like the new stuff that is like where the right answer would be the wrong answer. These are tests like, can you spell the word cold correctly? Okay. Yeah. And two, students two plus two are, still equals four and they're yeah, saying it's I five. Mean, so there's, there's always nonsense, obviously. That's, that's life and that's certainly life in modern America. But there are also things like, can you spell America correctly? with students failing. So just by comparison, right? New York's ultra-Orthodox Jews and ultra-Orthodox has its own religious history, but essentially these are Jews who would be visibly separate and separated almost like the Amish from all other people. And they live in very densely populated neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Queens, and then in two different counties quote, upstate, but not that far upstate, right on the border with New Jersey, Orange County, and Rockland County. And they have their own communities there, and they have their own schools, and their kids don't go to public school, and so on and so forth. They have very high birth rates. So what's going on there? So by comparison, you take a neighborhood right next to Williamsburg or Borough Park, very heavily uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods. And let's say you have you're going to have a school that's going to have maybe a little bit of everybody in Brooklyn, but it's going to have mostly um, American black students, or it's going to have mostly Puerto Rican students. In those schools, half of the kids are failing. So you take something that is kind of about as poor as as urban America gets, and half the kids are failing the same tests. Whereas in an ultra Orthodox school, all the boys are failing the tests. Yeah. Yeah. That's super fascinating. Yeah, the girls fail at slightly lower rates than the boys. So if the boys are failing somewhere in the 90s, the girls are failing somewhere in the 80s because the girls have a little bit proportionately more, quote, English, and we can talk about what that means. But they they don't study the same amount of Talmud that the boys do. So they're failing at lower rates because they have just a little bit more English, a little right. bit more math than right. they always do. I, I want to left turn for a second and we'll come yeah. right back to this because I do think it's super fascinating. But ultra-Orthodox versus Orthodox, I mean, mm-hmm. and this this is like semi-fascist to me uh, in, in terminology. So, um, you know, <laughs> what I thought Orthodox was like like the boss level, right? Like how do you become yeah. ultra-Orthodox? So can you just distinguish between the ultra-Orthodox Jews and the Orthodox Jews? As a, is that a technical language you're using? Yeah, it is technical language. Ultra-Orthodox has to do with maintenance of ways of life and even of dressing traditional to European Jews that are not maintained by just, just Orthodox, or sometimes that's called modern Orthodox Jews. So a modern Orthodox Jew, the most famous example people probably know is Ben Shapiro. So he is able to go certain places and do certain things and live in certain ways that are a little bit more amenable to integration into, let's say, whatever society he's living in. But this also holds in Israel. So for example, Israel's state religion is essentially modern Orthodox Judaism. The ultra-Orthodox will, for example, not speak another language among themselves other than Yiddish which is the traditional language of European Jews outside of Spain. And they will therefore not see a need, for example, to the issue in Israel for which Israel's modern Orthodox education minister is being described as anti-Semitic. Because what I'm describing in today's episode comes up everywhere that there are ultra-Orthodox. So in Israel, the the quote anti-Semitic modern Orthodox Jewish education minister is angry at the ultra-Orthodox for not providing 
education in what are also in Israel core subjects like math and English. That's actually a core subject in Israeli schools because he says they then grow up and then leech off the state because the ultra-Orthodox do not see it as commanded to a Jewish man to do anything except study Talmud. Mm -hmm. So there's no necessity for the man to go get a job or to, you know, whatever, go to engineering school or something that does happen, but it's relatively rare anywhere that there are ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. So, so, when there's the potential for a welfare state, people take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. That I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah, just there. It, yeah, it is there. And and one way that this works is that the men study, and then they their the family is living off state support as far as the dad's income goes, and the woman both cares for the children and and works. Hmm. So you know, Israel's major pharmaceutical manufacturer Teva has a lot of ultra-Orthodox women working for it, but probably not nearly the same number of ultra-Orthodox men. I, I mean, those, again, it's just like, why not? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but like, yeah. you want to pay me to read and then get mad that I want to do it, right? Like, <laughs> well, well they don't, yeah, don't want to pay them anymore. And and what's interesting is the the relative openness of the discussion in Israel Versus the relative closeness of the discussion in New York. Right, right. Well, and New York's a different place, although definitely still some some welfare state action going on there, I'm sure. Big time, So, yeah. But let's just come back for a second to the, the fact that this abysmal level of common, can I call it common core? It's not even, um, this abysmal level of common education, what mm -hmm. we would all expect. I mean, as a homeschool family here in Illinois, where we do have a great deal of freedom, uh, and we have, um, as a family, I, I have emphasized like, okay, you can learn whatever you want, but you're going to learn to read and write English. You're going to learn to do arithmetic. Right. It's going yeah. to happen. That is the yeah. essence. And from this, you yeah. shall learn to problem solve. Yeah. And, and so the fact that that is not happening in this region of the country that is next door to the most impoverished ruined schools. I mean, maybe outside of Baltimore, I would imagine you could probably find something worse. Right. But like, yeah, you probably could. Yeah. yeah. But, but right. like, it's that level of, of problem and that those kids are mm -hmm. by the numbers thriving in comparison. Yeah. It does so, call into I mean, question the value of these test scores though, because again, reading and writing English, doing arithmetic for me matters. I'm, if I'm a, if I'm an ultra Orthodox Jew, I think I just care about my kid being an ultra Orthodox Jew. I mean, that, that, that right. seems to be all that matters to me. So. Yeah. So the the New York Times article that came out September 11th is is in a long series of political maneuvers from both those who believe that the ultra orthodox need to exist in a different way in New York and from the ultra orthodox themselves. And this is a battle that's been running for at least five years on which the previous mayoral administration, Bill de Blasio's administration, they sat on a report revealing things like the English teachers don't actually know how to speak. They don't speak English in That's these awesome. schools. Or, or, you know, the students really can't do anything besides addition and subtraction, even in the equivalent of high school. They sat on their report for years because of the concentrated voting power of the Orthodox, right. especially in the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. So it's it's to nobody's political advantage necessarily for these things to come out or this to be some sort of strife. The problem is, though, that education is overseen by the state and not merely by the mayor of New York City. And the state does not have the same pressure to, you know, cave, essentially, where the de Blasio administration sat on this, the Adams administration, which has followed it, has not sat on it, but has basically watered down its recommendations for reform or recommendations for greater regulation. So that functionally speaking, nobody's actually discussing like, we're going to send in actual English speakers so that the kids actually know English. The New York Times report, of course, has its own political motivations. So they've found basically every kid, it seems in the article, who ever ran away from being ultra-Orthodox. But they do describe situations that are a little hard to imagine if you think of education as having any kind of 
public component to it. Like they'll, you know, the kid runs away from Kiriyas Yoel, which is a big Orthodox town in Rockland County, New York. And he's 18 years old and he doesn't actually, he can't actually talk to anybody because he only knows Yiddish. Yeah, right. Or he doesn't, he doesn't know how to write his name in English or just cannot function. And the point there is a point that is made in the Times, the really long Times article, which was, I think, four pages in the Sunday, September 11th edition. That tells you how much 9-11 actually matters, even in New York these days. They focused on this instead. Is orthodox, ultra-Orthodox parents will say, we're not failing. <laughs> right. Our schools are not failing. They are succeeding in keeping people in our community. And that's the goal. That's the goal, right. That's right. the goal. So so one of my my thoughts kind of immediately here is like how much would this article not be what it is if it were dealing with Spanish speaking immigrants? You know see what I'm saying? The article the article, yeah. So the article would not exist if it were dealing with Spanish speaking immigrants to to point out probably a lot of the people or the schools discussed in the article, these people don't speak English either. I mean, there's there's one young man that they describe and he says, I'm technically a third generation American because the ultra-Orthodox came to the United States in the 1940s, not, not directly like fleeing Germany necessarily always, but that's part of it. World War II generally is part of it. So they come in the 1940s. They don't exist here before that time. There are some equivalents previously in American Jewish history, but so much more integration in American Jewish history than the ultra-Orthodox. So this guy, his family has been here since whatever, the 40s, the 50s. I'm technically third generation. He says, I didn't know how to speak English until I was 28 years old. I mean, I could not speak it. I don't mean like passive, like your parents just got here from Puerto Rico. You go to a Spanish speaking public school, but you're watching TV, you're listening to the radio, or you have a phone or something. Ultra-Orthodox don't have any of that. So there's no ambient English speaking environment. And so I, I don't, it, it's it's really hard to say in the sense that Spanish speakers do not have the same political power in New York that the ultra-Orthodox do as a voting bloc, as a coherent voting bloc, because then they get divided up by national origin. I mean, Cubans don't vote like Puerto Ricans. But then in addition to that, those kids are not isolated from life if they just came from Venezuela or whatever in the way that- right. Jewish right. kids are ultra Orthodox right, right. Jewish. Kids. So, so yeah. the the Spanish population in, um, say, California and Texas, mm-hmm. within a generation, those kids got iPhones. They're watching TV. They're they're learning English um, on some level. They can at least right. kind of get around. And this is uh, this is true Amish paradise stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I the article brought up the Amish, but the comparison is actually. It's not that great because the Amish, and I, I don't think their English is outstanding, but they all speak English yeah. and they and they teach English. But I guess what I'm saying is this is uh, the goal of the Amish is to remain Amish. They have a way of life they want to preserve. Yeah. And that's what right. this is. And here we are. We are successfully preserving our way of life. And the the great free state of America says, no, you can't. No, right. you don't. Yeah, and and this is where, you know, the 1895 substantially equivalent requirement in New York or similar things in other states. It's it's a lot like the concept of religious freedom, which is currently a a very big deal for the modern Orthodox University, Shiva University, that's in, I think the main campus is in Manhattan. They've got branch campuses. But the concept of religious freedom as we've said before on the show, is really designed for the variances that you would find within a vastly predominantly Protestant community. You, you'd you have a couple Catholics, you'd have a couple people who never went to church, who knows precisely what they believe. That's what religious freedom was designed to accommodate in the United States, maybe a couple Jews. Apart from that, or variances from that that would include isolation from the surrounding community are not necessarily what America is actually capable of accommodating. 
the fight over education, and I think we've discussed this case before, Yoder v. Wisconsin from the early 1970s about whether the Amish have to send their children to public school, was resolved in a way that is fairly traditional. The Amish do not have to send their children to public school. After a lot of suffering by the Amish in the Midwest in a dispute that got resolved peacefully in Pennsylvania because there was no political stake in persecuting the Amish in Pennsylvania, there's not really a political stake in persecuting in any kind of public way. And the reaction from secular and non-secular Jews in English language media has been pretty hostile to the New York Times. There, there's really nothing to be gained by the city of New York or the state of New York in, in you know, throwing rabbis in jail. It's not right. going to happen. Right, right. But question then remains, what actually, is there something public that is requisite in education that the state could therefore require? So, I mean, New York already kind of had this issue. I mean, how many different languages can you get a ballot in, in New York? And if your ballot is in Cantonese or your ballot is in Yiddish or your ballot is in Spanish, do you have anything in common with each other? Are you a public in any way? Race publica, a republic, a really a better translation of race publica is a commonwealth. So what what is the common there in the commonwealth? And it's it's questions like this that I think are always lurking behind, I mean, stories like this. They are successfully preserving their way of life. Their way of life is in America. Is America an ultra-Orthodox Jewish place? It is not. Israel isn't even an ultra-Orthodox Jewish place. So what is their relationship to anyone else? And I think that they are unconcerned about it. I don't think that Christians can be entirely unconcerned because we have a, a calling of being citizens or or you know seeking the welfare of the city in which we dwell that ultra orthodox Jews do not do not have religiously they have no responsibility to anyone outside of their community christians do so i think it is a valid question there's a lot here some of it resembles some of the difficulties lutheran education had about 100 years ago that we have mentioned on the show before but the ultra-Orthodox are succeeding by saying that they really have nothing to do with the rest of the world, although they do receive substantial funding from the state for a variety of things, including child care vouchers, because the dads are studying, the moms go to work, and the kids go to school. So they do receive yeah, hundreds like, of millions of yeah, dollars. But you know, you, you build that state, you live with it. I mean, there's <laughs> if you're going to claim to be this thing— freedom of religion, freedom of speech, mm -hmm. we'll give you child support. Well, then then that's what you're going to get. I mean, the, this is <laughs> the insanity of, you know, like bringing it back to immigration again yeah. and, and how I think it's today, just now, that uh, DeSantis sent two airplane loads of immigrants to uh, <laughs> Mrs. Harris's house and, yeah. and all sorts of that's not fair and that's wrong and how dare you and, and all this. But like, if you want to be a sanctuary country, country, you're going to be a sanctuary country. If you're going to be a sanctuary city, you're going to be a sanctuary city. You're going to get what you build, yeah. which, which gets back to it's like, so the state wants to be in control of education while also insisting that education is going to begin teaching nonsense and irrationality as a substance of the future reality we live in. It just, you can't, I mean, I, I get it. It's all politics. It's all will to power. It's just propaganda. Everyone's going to try to move what they want to get the money where they want it to go. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't really have a lot of empathy for, for New York or the Times or otherwise, not because I'm so for whatever the, the Hasidic Jewish population wants to be, but I just, it's like, you, you can't be the city on a hill that lets everybody do what they want and then make them do what you want instead. It's just not going to happen. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that immigration brings up the same question that private education, religious education brings up, which is what exactly are we all here together for? Right. And and if you take a if you have a sense of it, that it is simply sort of like a cash register, then behavior such as the ultra orthodox engage in really wherever they are. I mean. 
you can find similar stories in Britain, Australia, Canada, even Israel, then you're going to you're going to have people behaving in a way that feels extremely cynical to outsiders. The other thing that I wonder about, and the Amish have this problem too, is that there are basic or simple things true about Christianity or true about how Christians have historically governed, even where they have governed in the name of a Christian state that have not included, for instance, freedom of religion, but have included, for example, the requirement that everyone be educated in some manner or that everyone be evangelized. Potentially the Amish are not going to evangelize anybody any more than the ultra-Orthodox feel any duty to speak English. So when you become your own closed group, you also often have to compromise something that perhaps I'm not the best judge of this, perhaps is Talmudically fine to do but is not perhaps biblically fine to do. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm just, I like, I'm still stuck on like, I'm supposed to walk into a gas station next to a 50 year old man who's mm -hmm. in a dress and high heels with mm -hmm. long dyed hair. And I'm supposed to think this is fine. I'm supposed to let my neighbor send his kids to a drag show at the library, but you want me to, to think that's all fine, but this this weird-looking Jewish guy who just wants to be old school, like, he's a problem. Like, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, like, like, his ghetto is... he's He just wants to be in his ghetto. He doesn't want to come yeah. in and change my kids. And so it's just... It just seems so... It's mind-boggling to me that the New York Times even cares. There's got to be some some money in it for, the, for them somewhere because... I don't... I don't think there's money explicitly. I think I think the reason it matters is because as a power block and as a reflection on education generally, they do matter. So they're not they're not small enough that they can be ignored. So there are lots of strange things going on in every American city. Like, you know, I mean, in Philadelphia, for example, there is a phrase called Muslim married which is jokingly used to describe, oh, that's my girlfriend, or I have two girlfriends and they don't know about it. I, I'm Muslim married to the other one. But the reason that's a joke is because it is relatively common among Muslims in the United States to practice polygamy in a way that is actually quite financially advantageous to them because the one who is not legally the man's wife, so he gets the tax benefits of file, you know, if he does file taxes, filing married jointly, but then he also gets the benefit of all the welfare of, of every sort due to a single mother who yeah. is his other wife. So things like that are always going on. The reason that that is not being discussed widely or may work, you know, would maybe only come up as a political issue in Michigan or New Jersey and probably not, but those are states with high Muslim populations, relatively speaking, is because Ultra-Orthodox Jews do matter in New York City politics. So the thing that I think about for the listeners is that you do get, people will come after you if you are successful at what you do. Correct. If you are relatively unsuccessful, then no, it doesn't matter that much. So we got nothing to worry about. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. You know, and, and, and when I was thinking about it, I mean... If you read the article and, and if you're not a New York Times subscriber, you know, whatever, go find some other version of it. I don't know. If you read the article, what you will find is an attitude toward the state that is the opposite of what I commonly observe in Lutheran circles, where in Lutheran circles, it's like we we try to be as utterly compliant as possible all the time, even when it's perhaps nonsensical, or we don't even evaluate whether it's sensible or or lacking in sense. We just kind of do what they are asking us to do. Yeah, well, the, the Hasidic Jews don't have Romans 13. So. Hasidic Jews. Well, they don't, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just that they don't have Romans 13, whatever, whatever that means. It's that, it's also that they, they feel no duty to comply with anything anyone else says. Right, so, which, which got to something that, that you said a while back and yeah. got some comments in the Discord and whatnot, and it was there was there's some confusion even maybe, but I think it was really good. Like on a certain level, Lutheran Christians, Christians should have more of that. 
We should have more like, I have, I don't have to do what you say. It doesn't mean I won't, right? I can, mm-hmm. I can, for the sake of love, listen to you. But this idea that, that we have to, that we're, we're driven by this um, extreme subservience is, uh, is maybe not really in line with, uh, certainly not with our history, um, not with our, our actual um, moral imperatives uh, as Christians to care for the city, because I'm not going to care for the city by just doing whatever the city says. That that's not right. going to help the city, um, and, and whatnot. But so so bringing up Romans 13, though, very much yeah. connected to this, I think, yeah. uh, because we're we're so far on the opposite pole. I was just at a pastors' conference recently, and and this came up again. We were talking COVID and and Romans 13. It's like, well, you know, you just you're supposed to go along and get along and 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 uh, bend the knee to the state as best you can yeah. uh, until you can't. And as opposed to the the active uh, pursuing of the good of the city. Which, by the way, then both uh, Hasidic Jews and Lutherans do have Jeremiah, the text you referenced earlier. So you would think yeah. we, would, we would be on the same page with this one. In the good of the city, you will find your welfare. Uh, but I, I, I guess I just want you to rehash this here a little bit, since I had to do it recently. I didn't feel like I did such a good <laughs> job. Like, like my, my yeah. doing what Caesar says isn't always right. And yet, somehow, this render under Caesar concept has kind of shut off the capacity of uh, modern Christian Lutherans uh, to do good because it might be disobedient, right? Um, and there is, there's a, I don't want to say a paradox, but there's definitely a tension there uh, wherein you're, you're not free to just kind of always obey and you're not free to just always disobey. You have to discern good and evil and act accordingly. And the, the bullet point answer is the preferable answer still in most conversations I find myself in. I do not think that the problem lies directly in articulating precisely what, you know, the verb hupotasso means in Romans. I think the problem lies in the assumption that life is a matter of toggle switches and you have to be the right kind of engineer and make sure that the switches flip to the right positions at the right times, rather than thinking of life as a matter of growth and wisdom, which is always requiring discernment and thought in order to do. And we don't have a model of being human that includes discernment and thought. We have a mat- a model perhaps driven or exacerbated by technological laziness where people are reactive or performative rather than substantive in their ways of talking even to other human beings. But we don't have a model where you would actually have to discern things. So that makes us very easily dupes or pawns because as soon as we're taught that the toggle switch is either you're doing what they're asking you to do or you're not, then I want to do what they're asking me to do. And then there are material benefits accruing to that because slaves do always get taken care of by their masters. If wisdom is required or discernment is required, then it may be that I discern after a while that my master is evilly motivated or that he's not even my master in the sense that I am his slave, or that the state is metaphorically a father and is not father directly. So if the state is destroying my family, I have to protect my family or protect my church over against the state's machinations. So I think that a lot of these things, as also the ultra-Orthodox approach to education, have to do with what you think a human being is supposed to, to be. And the reason that we are let's say reflexively compliant or just reflexive at all rather than thoughtful about things is precisely because we don't have an image of human beings as needing to be thoughtful. We have an image of them as needing to go through a certain series of reflexes in order to be right. You know, I mean, I, it's a different context, but I see the same thing every time someone wants to, you know, critique the show, something you say, something I say, and they have to be so nice about it. Just tell me you disagree with me. I mean, why are you going through this ritual of telling me how nice you are and how great what we say? I don't care. Just tell me you disagree with me. 
the the thing there is that you recognize that performance is vastly more important to people than truth. And the reason it is, is because they're valuing their status as good subject, nice guy, whatever, over the truth of the matter, which may be that the state is destroying my family by doing this, or it's destroying my neighbor's family by having the drag queen story hour at the public library or whatever is happening, you see. And so truth just becomes by and by less and less important also in education because you don't see it as actually essential to being human. I, I need truth for discernment and I need discernment for wisdom and I need wisdom. I'm supposed to value it more than anything else. Only if you read Proverbs and, and <laughs> right. to be fair, I love it, but it's, that's not law, the, so. it's not on the best. It is all lost, right? <laughs> There's nothing the law. And so so that that makes me kind of zero in on in your notes just the idea of what is education for? And you know, I think the title of this episode is going to be drilled to be and uh, there is a a critique of drilled thinking that mm-hmm. you're leveling right now and I'm with it while I also want to make it clear for the listener that there is a place for drilling. Um, drilling in education, drilling in practice is to repeat something so that it becomes second nature to you right. so that you can then build on top of that. And, and that's not going to be what our, our critique is. Our critique is that that would be what education is, that you would only be drilled. You know, ideally, you're drilling kids in the grammar phase. Uh, you're drilling your your initiate, your neophyte, the person who just needs some practice doing the basic thing. And I think basketball and a layup. You know, at a certain point, the kids just mm-hmm. got to do it over and over and over again. But it's right. not because he's ever going to have that wide open layup in a game. Very rarely, indeed, will he. Um, but he has to be able to do that without thinking, so we can think about other things. <laughs> the, the the point of the drilling is so that you're then able to use the mind to discern what's going on on the court while you're naturally doing things you have practiced. And so uh, what we have seeded in our Christian, uh, uh, I'm looking for kind of liberal arts thinking, we, we have totally seeded anything looking like the result of a well-drilled baseline with a uh, uh, problem-oriented, solution-oriented top or capstone and we have fallen into nothing but drilling or you use the engineering example and it is it's like it's like i'm the pastor and you come to me and you ask a question and i go to the board and i gotta flip this switch this switch and this switch see we're fine as long as i get those lights turned on we're great and okay go home now and you know everything is a matter of um you know what's the answer in the back of the textbook which, okay, so maybe, maybe this ties in a little bit. And again, this is under the, the heading, you know, what is education for? Uh, recently, a story uh, from some friends about struggling teaching their kids. Uh, kids are homeschooled, uh, but the kids had some regular schooling and the kids more or less um, study for the test. They, they don't do the work. Um, right. It's time to, to kind of test it. Um, and this is even involving like a local uh, kind of extension of their homeschool. They, they don't do the work. And then right before they cram and just to get through it. And um, yeah. that is that is the drilled mindset, right? There's nothing here to actually be gained. I just have to jump through a hoop. Once the hoop's over, then I can go back to well, you, you, earlier you asked, you know, what are we here in America for? To watch TV, Adam, to watch TV. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what is education for? Wisdom would be my answer coming out of your riff. Yeah, your turn right. to riff. The drilling, the drilling mindset is is present both in the kids and the yeshiva whose whose educational methods resemble more, you know, a, a, a Catholic parochial school, a Lutheran parochial school, a hundred years ago than they do than they do most other schools today because there's there's a there's a fair amount of corporal punishment, sometimes fairly severe. And the lecture method is like the teacher will talk and the students will listen. And that's, that's what goes on out of a book for like seven to eight hours a day. It's pretty intense. The religious portion at least is pretty intense. That method is going to create a certain adherence, especially if it is your only ambient environment. So if you communicate in this language and that the language is religiously and ethnically unique to you, 
that's going to maintain group coherence really well. I don't think of education as simply there for group coherence. Education is always producing forms of group coherence. There's a familiarity that I have with people who have a certain tone when they talk and a certain accent based on the fact of different educational institutions that I passed through. That's always going to be there. I don't, it's it's involuntary group coherence. I can hear myself when I hear them talk, their tone, their references, whatever. So education will always be group encouraging of some kind. It may simply encourage the group to be utterly cynical about learning full stop, which is very often what happens, especially when the child is taught to a test. Mm -hmm. If the education has wisdom as its requirement, then the instructional methods, especially the older the pupil is or the longer he studied, are going to reflect the idea that he has a soul that has to become wise. That's not really at the heart of ultra-Orthodox Jewish education, but it's also not at the heart of public education. Public education usually seems to encourage mostly both test-taking, but I think also whatever varieties of conformity are on offer at that time. Homeschoolers often react, homeschoolers especially react, by then being reflexively nonconformist, which has its positives and its negatives too. But the reason I think homeschoolers are like that, especially in the United States, is because of the stress on conformity that you find in public education, even when and where you don't find a stress on teaching to a test. There is a stress on conformity and uniformity, that people are like each other, that they spend their day with people of the same age of with with all the same limited intelligence and capacities for judgment but that's normal and then you're supposed to get used to that so i think that that you know if if the state of new york is saying you need to conform to something that's substantially equivalent there's a sense in which ultra orthodox jews are doing precisely what the public education system is doing they just have a different standard of conformity mm-hmm. but they are enforcing conformity i mean if i Personally, I mean, just as a matter of psychological habit, if I had grown up in that, I would have found it utterly unbearable because it does not encourage curiosity. But, you know, that a lot of people don't care for that at all in any human group. So (laughs) there's a sense in which not in terms of subject matter or knowledge of how to spell cold or, you know, what the capital of the United States is, but in the sense of effect on a human being that ultra-Orthodox Jewish education is doing precisely, not just substantially equivalent, but precisely equivalently what is being done at, you know, the local PS 100, whatever, which is to make people like each other as much as possible for the sake of some other person's agenda. But when you have uh, the truth, don't you need that on some level? Like, isn't that a goal? I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I'm not questioning the wisdom mm-hmm. side of it. Mm-hmm. But if don't we all want to have wisdom, well, wouldn't that be a conformity of sorts? Yeah, there is a conformity of sorts also in specifically Christian education, because if this is the way to either live your marriage or this is the way to build a bridge at this specific place across this river, then the truth is one. And it doesn't have to vary widely according to psychological predilection or family or something. So that's true. But there's a difference between something happening by the by and something being my main desire. So if by the by, you know, you guys all wind up changing your behavior in more or less similar ways because of something I taught you. That's by the by. My goal there wasn't that you all look like each other. It's that you all know the truth. The difference here, I think, is in motivation, especially in those who are doing the educating. And that difference in motive will affect difference in how you teach, difference in what you teach. Because, for example, it's not just that I want to get through the material or make sure that I say certain things. It's that I want, you know, I I want the truth to be known and the truth seems to grow 
in different human beings at different rates, also according to how much it impinges on their lives. So when it's particularly difficult, it seems to grow very, very slowly and then maybe very quickly as they begin to realize the consequences of that, this or that particular truth. Interesting. So then I guess I'm, I'm kind of pondering, you know, what are my goals for the education of my children? And, you know, you say, know the truth. And, and definitely I wouldn't dissuade that as a goal, but sure, I kind of would reframe it a little as I want my children to have the capacity to find the truth. I want mm-hmm. them to, to have the mind, right. which if there is no truth, seeks truth. And in that regard, then I think my goal is that I want my child to be able to grow. And I don't just mean physically, like to, to continue growing. And then interestingly, the f- next word that comes to mind is survival, uh, that I want my children to be capable of surviving. Mm-hmm. And for I find it interesting that, that growth and survival in my head are so closely linked that they would come out like that together. But I also think it, it's kind of informative uh, a little bit too, that that my my or my child's ability to seek truth is there in order to live and not to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's yeah. right. That's right. Also under complex situations of survival. So not just like, how do I start a fire, but no. how do I, how do right? How do I navigate this life situation or this, this social? And I think that sometimes people think about survival, especially group survival in sheerly and, and almost grossly biological terms. Like if I, if I have enabled my group to survive, but we are not attaining what is meant for us. then it's sort of like certain trees that, you know, farther north, they do exist. But when conditions for life become more abundant, farther south, closer to the tropics, or, you know, reverse that in the southern hemisphere, those trees can then flower. And I think a lot of us are just kind of aiming for some sort of stunted existence under very cold conditions. And I, I do not see that as consonant with the powers that you that you see, for example, the saints in the Bible develop. Solomon develops his, his capacities for wisdom and judgment. David develops his capacities for command. Moses develops his capacities for decision-making, but also for listening to the Lord more immediately. I mean, these things do, people grow and change and they are meant to do so. So, I mean, I don't... <laughs> Like if there's just like a bunch of Lutherans who are intellectually, you know, null and void, you know, but they still exist in 300 years. It's like, that's, that's great, but I would prefer to have flowering trees than not even to know that, that that tree could flower because I only, you know, I just wanted to survive under whatever conditions possible. So the, the coldest, least nutritious conditions you know, okay, fine, whatever. I mean, so sheer continuance, I don't think should be a goal of education, sheer group continuance. That's that exaltation of the group as such, I understand for ultra-Orthodox Jews, because they believe that they are genetically God's people on earth. So all they have to do is continue existing. But God doesn't need any one particular group of people to be the church or to exist. He can find others if he needs to raise them up from the stones if he needs to. So why would I value sheer group continuance over truth? That doesn't really make any sense to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I've asked you, you know, what's the point of Lutheranism before? Uh, and it's, it's not that I don't think our confessions took a stand on something important. It's that if you observe our institutional programmatic nature at the moment. And I, I across the board, I'm not picking mm-hmm. on anybody. Mm-hmm. It seems to be that group survival is kind of the only thing we really are concerned with. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just us, but it's also why, like, I mean, it never, I mean, I came here for out of some sort of truth convictions. I, you know, I, I didn't realize I was getting into, you know, you're going to know about a million more people from the state of Nebraska than you ever knew before. I didn't know that that was part of the bargain, but it was. And that's fine, but it's not a goal in and of itself. I didn't like become a Lutheran in order to meet more people from the Great Plains states or something. And I, so I was also never, I'm never impressed when some group talks about itself as 
the authoritative group. So become Catholic so that this group can, or, or become Orthodox so that this group instead can teach you. And sometimes Lutherans talk that way. I think all groups talk that way sometimes. And what that, what's that, what that's doing educationally or for someone who is inquiring a potential convert is that it's saying that what you need to do is to sort of dissolve into the group. Mm-hmm. And that is a goal of its own. I just don't think that it's a goal necessarily consonant with truth. You know, the, the Samaritan woman doesn't become not a Samaritan or something by learning truth from Jesus, but he addresses her individually in learning the truth both about herself and about the group. I mean, there are truths about her group she probably can't accept right away, like salvation comes from the Jews, not from the Samaritans, right? Holiness is from Zion, not Ebal and Gerizim. So these things are, I mean, it's, it's not like groups don't exist or don't matter at all. It is that they are not the primary thing if you're going to bother to educate an individual human being. And that exaltation of the group is eventually going to wind up in an exaltation of the group and of the group's needs and desires probably over the truth. I mean, the ultra-Orthodox kind of have to be dishonest to take money for childcare vouchers for things that they know. I mean, <laughs> they received $200,000 last year for, quote, internet needs. They don't let their own people go on the internet. Hmm. <laughs> There's So when group survival, you're going to turn into a dishonest person when group survival overrules truth, that's that's the way human beings are. And if that's the case, then there's no point in educating people. Just tell them you have to be Jewish or you have to be Lutheran or you have to be whatever you have to you have to use the right pronouns. I mean, that that is what political correctness is. It exists in all groups. It doesn't just exist in Ivy League universities. And that is the exaltation of the group's prerogatives and priorities and especially of its leaders prerogatives and priorities over truth. The truth is, this is not a woman. This is a man. Well, do I want to ruin my own life by, you know, dead naming this man? No, you know what? Today I don't because I need to get a job when I graduate from Harvard. And if I get a degree from Harvard, a lot of the rest of my life is made. So I'm going to use the pronouns and I'm going to move through the system. There's probably some Jewish kid sitting in Brooklyn as we record this today, bored out of his mind, but this is the life he knows, you know, and if education is worth anything, I think it doesn't crush that person who does notice that something that the group is saying is actually wrong. Yeah. So integrity, right? Um, human integrity, the ability to to say what you see, even if it is wrong, in order to learn what is right. And because you want to, because you want right. to learn what is right. Right. As opposed to the fear of saying anything lest you be wrong. Um, and lest the group discover that it is wrong. Yeah. 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 Because what, what's happening there is that, you know, I don't, whatever, I don't, I don't know what all prerogatives and, and intramural debates or ultra Orthodox Jews have about everything for a Christian, you are premising the nature of your religion on human capacity to know the truth because the truth sets you free. So let's just put a capital T on the T in truth, the first T in truth, and say that that involves knowing Jesus Christ. So if someone if someone has always been lied to and has become utterly cynical about all claims, or someone has developed an incapacity to recognize truth and a complete prioritization, this is increasingly common, prioritization of social conformity over truth, then what you're basically getting at that point is a person who is incapable of considering unless he is growing up in a Christian homeschooling family or something. Otherwise, if his social conformity doesn't involve Christianity, then when is he ever going to become a Christian? He's not. There's absolutely no reason. He doesn't even have a capacity to think about truth independently of whether the group likes it or not. So he's going to be the Mormon missionary who's not allowed to keep talking to you, or he's going to be the Jewish person that has been instructed not even to talk to you or look at you ever, which is what you would find if you weren't ultra-Orthodox and you walked around Borough Park. You will be you will be physically avoided. Okay, That 
that's going to maintain group coherence. It's not going to maintain truth. Jesus is still the Messiah, even if they're physically avoiding talking to you and can't because they don't know how to speak English. He's still their Messiah. So this is where education is both always in its own way religious, but it's also always it's also always a prelude to religion because the way in which I am ed- educated will set up the way in which I have some capacity to come to a knowledge of truth generally, but, but specifically the truth of the gospel. Is there anything you want to say today that we haven't gotten to yet? These are developing things. I think I see Christians aligning themselves largely with the ultra Orthodox in these debates, also with the modern Orthodox in the debate. The listeners can go look it up for themselves. It will probably have developed by the time the episode comes out even more because the Supreme Court basically said state courts need to talk about this more before we make a decision about whether Yeshiva University needs to permit a basically a gay straight alliance type of a club on their grounds because Orthodox Jews do not believe homosexuality is morally justified. So these things are developing, also developing because it's an inherently politically unstable situation are what the ultra-Orthodox actually are forced to do and whether they comply at all. They didn't really comply with COVID regulations in New York City and they got away with it. They're largely entirely unvaccinated. So there are now discussions about polio and wastewater and the nature of vaccination. And that's been going on for a long time too. So what I think is interesting about this is that Christians often will align themselves with these things. And I understand why that is. I also am interested to see whether you get any Christian parallels to this community. They have birth rates similar to say Mormons or, you know, Latin mass Catholics, some Lutherans, some evangelicals. So it's not going to go away because also in Israel, Israel is beginning to have actual economic concerns about the fact that they're easily their fastest growing demographic isn't interested in holding down jobs. So whereas they're, they're secular, which is mainly the nature of Israel historically, their secular Jews have extremely low birth rates. I mean, well below replacement rate. So this is a story that just in terms of the ultra-Orthodox, but I think also in terms of how much pluralism can actually be lived with in a common group, state, entity. These are stories that are, I think, only going to increase in frequency. They're not going to go away. I think it's super interesting that the demographic situation is a big part of it, right? So so how long can pluralism last? Well, it's great until I don't have kids and you do, and now there's more of you than me, and now I don't like it so much. Yeah, It's it's a really fascinating little upside-down thing. Yeah, and and New York City public schools have been bleeding students since 2020. So that's also a dynamic is that, okay, yeah, they're better at teaching a few more kids to do to do multiplication than the ultra orthodox schools but there's also way more kids as let's just say rate wise entering ultra orthodox schools more and more each year than there are entering new york city public schools even though obviously the numbers are still absolutely in favor of the public schools relatively they're bleeding students and the ultra orthodox schools are gaining students in addition to other kinds of you know non public schooling the integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. Proverbs 11.3. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.